We're making a systematic verse-by-verse study of what has been traditionally known as the Sermon on the Mount. In an article that was entitled, Giving to the Needy, Harold Merritt, a friend of mine, has written that for the followers of Jesus Christ, which is you and I, for the followers of Jesus Christ, an upright life is not optional. It's essential. Righteousness is a significant theme in Matthew's Gospel and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, which highlights the need for Christians to display godly character as well as conduct. The need for Christians to display godly character as well as conduct. Continually, the number one complaint that I hear about the church and about Christians is that you play the game on Sunday mornings, but you don't live it during the week. The hypocrisy. Stating we believe one thing, but then not demonstrating it by the lives that we live. Now we've already seen how Jesus prefaced his six examples with an admonition. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And and if he'd have been here right now giving this sermon, and you and I would have been those people listening, we would have always said what? We can't do that. Forget it. It's over then. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were people that were looked up to as being the examples of what it meant to be pious. Why? Those Pharisees, they not only had the Ten Commandments, they had 365 positive commandments and over 600 prohibitions to make sure they didn't violate the Ten Commandments. Now, I also emphasized that these examples should be understood as something that is not a antithesis, not an opposite, but a uh, it should be a I, here I am again. I can't move forward. Hold on just a second. There we go. Not a not an antithesis because Jesus already said, I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law. And so when we looked at each of those, when he said, But I say to you, it really would be better if we said, and I say to you. Here's how you can can fulfill it in a better way, a transforming initiative. Um, And it was teaching a righteousness that surpassed in the sense that it was a righteousness that was without limits. It went to the heart. It had to do with the whole being, the mind, the motives. And then, as Jesus begins to transition to what is his actual application, what we've looked at for the last two weeks and today, he gives that impossible statement. 
You therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I, I failed already today. Anybody else with me? I mean, I said to my wife when she came in my office this morning, I said, can you imagine how hard it is to get up and deliver a message to people when you're emotionally not here, when you are needing to sit down and be ministered to. That's why I've appreciated so much your willingness to allow me to be gone every once in a while to go to conferences and conventions where I can sit down. And, uh, and I too, Willie, um, I listen to different speakers I'm so glad for podcasts and things like that. Uh, <laughs> my wife will come into the living room or into the back room and, and uh, I'll have some guy giving a, a lecture on something biblical uh, in England uh, in the Oxford system or something. N.T. Wright's one of my favorites. Just to get sit back and be ministered to. And we need to understand that this really isn't an impossible statement. Because I know you can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. I haven't been perfect already today. But that word has a different meaning today than it did when they heard it. The word perfect. The word teleos in the Greek was a word that meant you need to be whole. You need to be uniform. You need to be consistent just like our Father in Heaven is. It's a word that's actually used in opposition or apposition to the whole idea of hypocrisy. Be unified. And so, the last two Sundays, we looked at a couple of ways of practicing righteousness, giving and prayer. And I think one of the obvious from this verse alone, uh, because... Excuse me. One of the things that he said was, as chapter 6 begins, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father is in, in heaven. It's kind of like there's one reward. So do you want to play up your prayer and play up your giving so that you get the reward from people? Or... Do you want to do it in the way that the Scriptures prescribe so that you get the reward from God? Uh, I love my brother uh, in ministry that we work together. Uh, but he, when he talked, he talked like this. But when he prayed, he prayed like this. <laughs> kind of the difference when my wife's talking to me and the phone rings and she answers the phone. You know, she talks to you on the phone like, oh, hi, how are you? And I promise you that's probably not how she was just talking to me. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So the obvious from the verse, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, is the obvious is, is that we are to be practicing righteousness. In other words, there are times when it's not going to come natural. 
And we got to do it in spite of our feelings. Uh, I've shared with you about my success in football when I was in high school and I'm into college. I love the games. But I sure didn't like summer practices in August when it was in high school three a day and in college four a day. But there are times that we have to practice so that when... I don't know any other way. When things get bad, I started to talk about the fan. I was trying to figure out a good way to say it. When things get bad, we don't have to stop and think. We respond in the right way because we've practiced what it's going to mean. Now, like I said, I mentioned that there are three areas that Jesus uses as examples. And we looked at both giving and praying. And I stress the fact that Jesus didn't say, if you give. He didn't say, if you pray. When my wife came in this morning, she didn't say, are we going to give? She simply said, what's our tithe for this week? The assumption is we're going to give. When? And that's what Jesus said. When you give. When you pray. Now today we look at what Jesus said regarding fasting. Which isn't a popular subject uh, in our church. It's not a uh, popular subject anywhere. I shared with you from my friend David Butts, uh, who is a man of prayer, both in terms of his living and writing as well as in his dying. And David wrote one of the chapters in the book that I've been talking about that was given in honor of Dr. Henderson. And his, the chapter he wrote was on fasting. And he writes this, While I was growing up, I don't recall ever hearing a sermon on, or a lesson on fasting. It was certainly there in the pages of Scripture, but we viewed it somewhat like sacrifices in the Old Testament. Interesting but irrelevant as far as practicing it today is concerned. That was basically my, my experience. I, I grew up in a minister's home. I don't remember, he might have, because i got to be honest, as a preacher's kid, I wasn't really always paying uh, the kind of attention that I should have been praying. Uh, and there were a couple occasions where my dad was preaching and he used the dramatic pause. You know what a dramatic pause is? when the speaker intentionally stops to make sure he has everybody's attention. And when my dad did the, the dramatic pause, every time I looked up and he was looking right at me. Uh, one time without saying a word, I was sitting in the back. He did his dramatic pause. I looked up, he was looking at me, and all he did is look at the front pew. And I knew to get up and go down to the front pew without a word being spoken. Sometimes, sometimes we just kind of pass over. And that's one of the things that I like about the way I preach sermons. We pick a book, we pick the Sermon on the Mount, and we go through it week after week so that I can't jump over something and say, well, you know, I'm not going to deal with that because it's right there. One of the leaders of the Reformation uh, and a writer of many of the songs that we sing every Sunday, John Wesley, 
summarizing both historical Christianity and the current practice at the beginning of the 18th century wrote, some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason pointing out the practice of the religious ascetics who would go without food for long periods of time almost to the point of starvation and then he said and others have utterly disregarded it now I don't think any of us are starving ourselves or even coming close but are we close to the other extreme of utterly disregarding fasting and I'm not talking about fasting as a form of dieting that's not what we're talking about let me read to you a, a portion from a book that I highly recommend it's a book called Celebration of Discipline it's written by a man named Richard Foster He writes this, In a culture where the landscape is dotted with shrines to the golden arches and an assortment of pizza temples, fasting seems out of place, out of step with the times. In fact, fasting has been in general disrepute both in and outside the church for many years. For example, in my research, I could not find one single book published on the subject of fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. Now we'll come back to defining what we mean, but Fasting is actually a practice of humbling ourselves before God. And the Bible's full of examples of people who have abstained from food to seek God. In fact, it's almost a who's who of fasting in the Bible. For example, Jesus fasted before he began his public ministry. Luke 4. Nehemiah fasted to help him confess his sins to God and turn away from them and to ask God for favor in the sight of the king of Persia to get permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 1. David fasted to ask God to intervene because of injustice. Psalm 35. And in 2 Samuel 12, he fasted and asked for a miraculous hearing, a request that, by the way, God did not grant... Mordecai and the Jews fasted upon hearing the news that Haman had a wicked plot to destroy all of the Jews. Their ex extermination in Esther chapter 4. The early church, Acts 13, it says they were worshiping and committing their ministry to the Lord. And what did they do? They sought the Lord through fasting for guidance when they were appointing their new leaders. And fasting isn't limited to the believers the Bible mentions. Many of the church's most important leaders uh, during an important time in history, known as the Protestant Reformation, fasted, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. In fact, John Knox fasted and prayed so much that Queen Mary said she feared his prayers more than she did the armies of Scotland. And in terms of the restoration movement, 
That is the Christian churches and churches of Christ that we're a part of. In the, ninth, in the 1839 second edition of the Christian system, and I have it back in my office if you'd like to see it. Be careful when you're touching it. It might fall apart because it is 1839 leather on the sides and all that stuff. But Alexander Campbell wrote these words. He talked about what he referred to as the ordinances of baptism, confession, prayer, fasting, and intercession. And he said, It is wise and kind on the part of heaven to ordain such acts or to institute such ordinances as will assure ourselves and others of our new relations and to suspend our enjoyment of the favor and love of God not merely upon faith and penitence or of any other mental operation but upon certain clear overt acts such as baptism, confession, prayer, fasting, and intercession which affect ourselves and others much more than they possibly can affect God Himself being the fruit of our faith or perhaps only the perfecting of our faith in the promises of God. So our history as a church movement, the independent Christian churches, includes teaching that says fasting is important. In fact, he saw fasting as a biblical ordinance. And normally, when you hear people talking about ordinances in the Christian churches, you only hear about baptism and communion. Sometimes marriage will slide in there. So, what is fasting from a biblical perspective? Dallas Willard points out that throughout Scripture, fasting refers to a Christian voluntarily abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. In fact, he'll go on to emphatically say that biblical fasting always centers on spiritual purposes. And this is important because we need to see that biblical fasting is not for physical purposes. It's more than just the ultimate crash diet for the body. Nor is it a hunger strike. When somebody goes on a hunger strike, they're going without food. But that's not what biblical fasting is all about. Yes, it's abstinence from food, but only for the purpose of helping us grow in our faith. Let me go back to my friend Dave Butts. He wrote, so many Christians today snack their way through the day on junk food activities and then find they have no time to feast with God. We complain about our busyness and tiredness, but that is, a, is typically a spiritual problem more than a problem of schedule. We desire everything except God. We take God in small doses throughout the day and the week and somehow hope that on Sunday we can catch up on our time with the Lord. So let me ask you, is it possibly time for us to include fasting as a regular part of our schedule. Again, notice as we start digging into the text, notice that Jesus does begin. And when you fast, and he even repeats the phrase, but when you fast, in only a couple verses. God's Word. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. First, I want to just today just look at a few questions. And let me address, first of all, the question of, is there a command to fast? Somebody said, well, the Bible doesn't say I have to fast. Well, in those words, it doesn't. But if Jesus says, when you fast, but when you fast... I'm going to assume that he wants me doing it. You see, in fact, it's the third example of closely paralleled comments on hypocrisy in our piety practices uh, regarding what were fundamental and regular acts of Jewish piety. It's as if it's a, a conscious assumption that giving Praying and fasting are all to be a part of Christian devotion. Uh, you know that I did graduate work at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, many of my classmates were a part of churches that only had communion once a month. Jesse and I, uh, when we were in between ministries, I was an interim minister at uh, a church in down in. Uh, Valor. Thanks. I had the F, but I was trying to think of Forrest. No, that's over there. Uh, but when we got there, uh, they said, can you keep coming back as our interim for a while? And I said, well, I, I, I have a problem. They said, well, why is that? I said, well, you probably only have communion like once a month. And the lady smiled and said, no, we only have it once a quarter. But then she said, but if you'll come back, we'll have communion every Sunday. And so we did. We were still going there to preach every Sunday until we accepted the call to come here. Because it's that much a part of what I feel to be my worship experience. And, and there's no command to have communion. But again... There are verses that say on the first day of the week when they met together for the breaking of bread and for prayers. So, you know, is there a thou shalt? Or, no, there isn't. But, when you take this passage that we just read and combine it with another passage from Jesus, also in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, 14, Verse 14, the disciples of John come to Jesus and they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples don't? And Jesus said, well, when you're with the bride, then you don't have to fast. Or the bridegroom, I mean. When you're with the bridegroom, you don't have to fast. But when the bridegroom is taken away, you will fast. 
Who was Jesus referring to as the bridegroom? Himself. Himself. And so what He was saying was, is that as long as I'm with My disciples, no, they don't have to fast. They can feast with Me. But when I'm taken away, then they and all of My other followers will fast. And it includes the wedding gifts, which is you and I. So I think with his statements in the sermon that we read and that teaching from Matthew 9, I think it's clear that Jesus not only upheld the discipline of fasting, but he actually anticipated that we as his followers would also fast. So what's the purpose of fasting? Well, sometimes there is so much emphasis on the blessings and the benefits of fasting that our focus gets skewed. Fasting is not to be used to try to get God to do what we want. Well, I fasted and prayed, but God didn't answer my prayer. No. Fasting and prayer is to align us with the will of God so that we know what God wants us to do. It's a, it's a focus on the blesser and not the blessing. And I think it's interesting that back in Luke 2, we're talking about birth time and birth narrative of Jesus. When Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple as a baby according to the custom of the law, there was a prophetess there named Anna. We were told that she didn't even depart from the temple, but was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, if you want to move in, we'll figure out where we can get a place for you to stay. But that's kind of like what Anna did. She moved into the temple and stayed there. And everybody knew that she was constantly worshiping. And how was the worshiping defined? By fasting and praying. The same combination of words is used again in Acts 13. We're told that the prophets, the teachers at Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting. You see, once that primary emphasis, that primary purpose is understood and fixed, that we're not fasting to lose weight. Now, you want to lose weight? I shared with you how to lose weight over the last couple of years. I need to start sharing with you more because I'm kind of creeping up again. But the best way to you, I walked over 2,000 miles since August of, uh, when, was, when was our 25th? 22. August of 22. Over 2,000 miles. I didn't go very far the first day. I only made it from our house out to the parking lot of the conservation club. And I told my wife and daughter, I said, I think I better turn back or you'll have to go back and get in the car and get me. <laughs> no, fasting isn't to lose weight. It's to worship. But once we get that in place, then we can begin to realize that there are some secondary purposes. One of those 
is uh, it reveals how things are controlling us. For example, pride. Struggle with pride? Psalm 69.10, David said, When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Pride became his reproach. It's a way to keep our balance in life. We often and easily begin to allow non-essentials to take precedence. We, we crave things that we don't need until we're actually enslaved to them. And fasting is one way to keep them in control. My wife said uh, last night, you know, I, I just don't have my appetite like I did. Because essentially, from, Friday, from Thursday morning until Friday afternoon late, we were a part of a fast of a liquid-only diet. That's a type of fast. Now, we weren't doing it as a religious spiritual fast. We were doing it for medical reasons. But one of the side effects was, is for both of us, it kicked our appetite back. Because for a whole period of time, we weren't feeding that appetite of needing to have food. Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 9, probably one of the best passages on fasting in the Bible. In verse 6, Isaiah writes, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? You see, it's a way for you and I, if we are struggling, to begin to strengthen our self-discipline. To lessen the hold of material things on us. So, the question about the practice of fasting itself. To pray is to seek God's face and to acknowledge our dependence on Him. Now, unfortunately, many of us have grown up thinking and believing that prayer was like addressing God our, our wish list. One of my friends who tends to be even more sarcastic than I referred to it as an organ lesson or an organ recital. He said, prayer time is like an organ recital. God, my liver's doing this, my kidney's doing that, my, somebody, my stomach's doing this. Focusing on our wants instead of focusing on getting our lives straightened out with God. And to fast, that is to abstain from food for spiritual reasons, is intended at least partly as a way to deny and so to discipline ourselves. Jesus doesn't raise the question whether his followers will engage in these things, but assuming that they will teaches them why and how. And I believe that some of our lives, our Christian lives, are lived as if these verses that we read today have been torn out of the Bible. A lot of Christians lay stress on daily prayers, on sacrificial giving, but few lay stress on fasting. And think about it. 
Jesus Himself, our Lord and Master, fasted for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. He fasted before He chose His disciples. He fasted before all of... He got Himself away for a time of prayer and fasting. Now, just so that you understand, biblically speaking, 40 days and 49 nights without food is not the only way to fast. It's a complete fast. But, also in the Bible, there are limited fasts. Daniel and his three friends, for spiritual reasons, what did they do? They cut out all of the rich, the extra things and limited themselves in terms of their diet for spiritual purposes. In fact, Judaism, it was a fast that went from supper one day till supper the next day. Just cutting out breakfast and lunch. <coughs> Another way that you can fast is to take one meal. I have several friends who did this for one month, a group of them, and, and they were shocked. For one month, everybody in that group went without lunch and took the money that they would have spent for lunch and the time that would, they would have been involved, and they set that time aside and they prayed for one particular mission during that time and they took the money they would have spent for lunch and they all put that together and at the end of the month they shared that money with the mission that they had been praying for all month those are all biblical acceptable ways to fast and there's a way that everybody I, I'm diabetic and there's a way that I can fast without harming or causing any alarm to my diabetes but it's our focus. You see, that's where Jesus went with his talk. He didn't even address the question of how or when. He, he simply, well, he kind of did with how. He simply said, when you fast, don't make a production of it. Don't make a show of it. Don't, oh, oh I'm so hungry, I'm fasting. No, he said, get yourself cleaned up, wash like you would normally do, go out and present yourself as if you weren't fasting so that it's between you and God. Which brings me to my challenge. You see, whether for penitence or for prayer, whether for self-discipline or for solitary, solidary love. Uh, there are good biblical reasons for fasting. And whatever our reasons, Jesus took it for granted that fasting would have a place in the Christian life. Thus His words, when you fast. His concern was that as with our giving and with our prayer, so with our fasting, that we should not, like the hypocrites, draw attention to ourselves. So my challenge is for you and I to hear the call to fast out of devotion to God and to do so secretly and thereby receive the true reward 
from God in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that Your Word challenges us. Sometimes we, we, we struggle, yes, with giving that tithe as the baseline and that our, our gifts and offerings come above our tithe. But we're so reluctant because of how we have been raised in the society in which we're li- living to, to show a little self-discipline and to do without so that we can do for you. So Father, as we focus on the Christmas season and, and the giving, help us to figure out ways maybe even this week that we can fast and do without so that we can give to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of